Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers. And on today's show, Matt, it's May. We've gone through an entire month of baseball. Can you believe it? So we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. We're going to look back at uh, the coolest catches of April. We're going to look at one of the biggest injuries, how that will affect uh, one of baseball's, I think, biggest contenders. Uh, look at some hitters and pitchers who have outperformed or underperformed their StatCast measurements. Uh, get to one of Matt's favorite relief pitchers as of this morning and um, induct a new play into our StatCast Hall of Fame. And I'm, I'm guessing people might already know what that play is going to be because we certainly, you know, pimped it a lot in video over the weekend, but it was so cool we got to talk about it. Right? Are you excited? I'm fired up, I, ready to I go. Can really, I can tell in your voice just the excitement is there. Let's do it. So we just had an entire month of baseball, and uh, I think that's cool because, you know, we, we always talk about, oh, it's early, it's early. You know, and it is early, but I think a month, I mean, that's a sixth of the season. That's enough time to start to get a feel for what's going to happen this year, what teams are going to be what, uh, what players are going to be what. So what's cool about that, though, is obviously this is the StatCast show. We like to look at all of our StatCast metrics. I think a month is enough time where we can start to look at guys who have maybe outperformed what they're supposed to be doing or underperformed because it's still early enough where, like, your batting average could be way out of whack for it's going to be the rest of the year. Right? But we're not, we're not just talking about your run-of-the-mill BABIP here. We're talking about... Oh, I didn't get there yet. Yeah, we're, we're talking. <laughs> please, uh, get please get into it. Babbitt is so uh, 2006. Um, no, we, so we've talked about this before. We've introduced hit probability this year, and what that basically means is based on exit velocity and launch angle. Uh, you can tell a great deal about whether a batted ball is going to be a hit or not. It's not just exit velocity. It's not just launch angle. It's a combination of both of those things. And then when you combine in real-world stri- uh, strikeouts and walks uh, for expected weighted on base average is what we're going to talk about, then you can get a pretty good idea of what a hitter's overall like batted ball plate appearance profile, uh, you know, quote-unquote, should be. Right? And then you can see, well... If a guy's way be- below what he's supposed to be at, is he unlucky? Is there a reason for that? If a guy's way above it, you can say, well, you know, maybe don't buy into that hot start too much because this is maybe likely to come down. So uh, we looked at this. So let's start with hitters, right? 251 hitters so far had a minimum of 50 plate appearances. And the stat we're going to use here is weighted on base average. We'll call it WOBA. What it basically means is it's very similar to on-base percentage, except getting on base uh, is not weighted equally as it is for on-base percentage. Hitting a home run, way more valuable than getting a walk. There's a sliding scale. So the Major League average WOBA for uh, the month so far is 316. Everything we say is based on the average being 316. Um, We looked at the top 10 underperformers, right? The guys who are really not off to a very good start, but their batted ball profile says maybe better things are to come. And um, I don't know. I looked at this list. There's a couple names that stand out to me right away. One of them is Miguel Cabrera, because we talked about this a lot over the winter. I think as long as Miguel Cabrera plays in Detroit, he's always going to be on this list. We, uh, he just came off the DL today, but we saw before he got hurt that one series against the Red Sox, I think. He was just crushing 405 footballs to dead center that got caught for outs because Detroit's park is ludicrous. Yeah, basically, I mean, my takeaway from Miguel Cabrera, what we've learned about him based on where uh, expected on base, is that if he played... In another in another park, he be a good bet to hit seven hundred home runs in his career. He might hit seven home runs this season. Right? <laughs> so I, I said his name without giving you the numbers. Uh, the major league average weighted on base this year is three sixteen, as I said. So Miggy has actually got a three sixty six, right? And that's that's his actual. That's really really good. His his expected weighted on base. 467. That's a difference of 100 points. I will grant part of that is because we do not account for speed, and speed is certainly not a part of Miguel Cabrera's game. He's not beating out any base hits. He's not stretching singles and the doubles. So that's that's not bad luck. That's just the player he is. Um, but that is the fourth highest difference, and I think that that is very much uh, ballpark related. He's crushing the ball even without this. And as you said, a different ballpark maybe boosts his career totals from 
insanely good to like obscenely good. Exactly. Right? That's the exactly. difference. Um, what I like about a list like this is I see a guy like Greg Bird. Uh, Greg Bird's off to a really poor start for the Yankees. You know, things aren't going well then when the general manager actually has to talk about whether he's going to get sent back to AAA or not, which is what happened the other day. Uh, Greg Bird's line so far, 100 batting average, 250 on base, and a 200 slugging. That's bad no matter where you play. It's extremely bad when you're a first baseman. But when you look at Greg Bird, so that's a 222 weighted on base. Uh, his expected weighted on base, 311. That's basically league average. And uh, there's some cool numbers that go into that. He has hit almost 45% of his balls at 95 miles an hour or harder. Similar to Bryce Harper, who's having a great year. Similar to Matt Kemp, who's crushing. Similar to Michael Conforto, who's crushing. The MLB average, batting average, on balls that go 95 miles an hour or more, 536. Greg Bird's average, 294. Five hits, 12 outs, which says to me either hitting him into the ground or just hitting them right at field, there's a bad luck. Yeah, as it turns out, we've sort of learned, you know, like 95 miles per hour is a very good sort of like break-even point of like, because it's very close to basically 50-50 for uh, hit or not. And as Mike alluded to, you know. 536. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. It's close to 50-50. In terms of, if we're going by five mile per hour increments, it's the closest to the 50-50 spot. And obviously launch angle goes into it, but sometimes it's just a little bit of bad luck. We know... We don't put a lot of stock in the spring stats on this show, but we know Greg Bird was definitely crushing the ball in spring. So the fact that he's continued to hit the ball hard in the regular season should be encouraging to Yankee fans and you know Greg Bird fantasy owners who have who may have already uh, cut bait. Another guy on this uh, the underperformers list has been in the news a lot lately for a variety of reasons. But Manny Machado, uh, Machado crushed the ball last night in in Fenway Park. I think basically went out of the stadium. It's not off to a great start, right? 225 batting average, 340 on base, a 449 slugging. It's fine, but that's not the Manny Machado we've come to expect. He has the fifth highest exit velocity in baseball, 94.7 miles an hour. Uh, his actual weighted on base is 344. That's, again, already above. The, Wait, like well above average. Well, well above the average. His expected 422. So based on the way he's crushing and just based on his history of who he is, he seems like a good bet to uh, maybe perform a little better as, as time goes yeah, on. Yeah, last Friday night, which was like uh, the night of the, cr- the crazy uh, home runs, like crazy home runs going all over the place. We'll talk about that more later. He hit one 470 feet, which was at the time tied for the farthest in baseball this year that was then, you know, surpassed the next day by, uh, by Jake Lamb. But uh, Machado seems to be uh, finding his groove. So a couple other guys on the underperformers list, uh, James McCann, I think a very similar issue to Miguel Cabrera. He plays in Detroit. He's uh, underperforming by almost 100 points. Uh, Matt Joyce, I think, is pretty interesting. You know, he's he's got a 230 weighted on base. That's well below average. Expected 340. I mean, that's above average. So is is it as simple as the hits just aren't falling? Byron Buxton has played defense against him every single game. I haven't looked deeply into every single guy in this list, but it, it's really interesting. Like based on the first month of the season, you can get a good feeling for what a guy is supposed to be doing. What actually happens is still pretty up and down based on small samples. Yeah, one other name that's on here that that's, that 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 hits home for me is Carlos Correa as a uh, Carlos Correa uh, fantasy owner uh, because he is off to a rough start. But to see him as uh, his weight on base is three or two, but the expected three seventy eight, it's a little bit encouraging. You know, I don't know if we, I think we may have mentioned this on the show before that. Someone has created a barrel alert Twitter account. Um, so every time someone in Major League Baseball hits a barrel uh, by StatCast terms, there's a tweet that sort of announces it to the world, which is awesome. And I'd encourage you all to uh, 
Well, <laughs> if you listen to the show, it's likely you are the type of person who'd oh, no. be interested in subscribing to that well, account. Well, since you brought it up, uh, I know that the person who did that is a listener of the show. His name is Casey, uh, and he did that, and he will be very, very excited to hear his name, and probably within about three hours, because he tends to listen to the show very quickly, which I love. Um, but anyway, so as, as a Carlos uh, Correa fantasy owner, I think it was on Sunday, I was just checking Twitter, and I saw Barrel, Carlos Correa. I was like, sweet! And then it looked, it was like, fly out, you know, like, right. and I was like, oh. and it was like, you know, 108 miles an hour, 34 degrees, uh, disheartening, but uh, anyway, follow that Twitter account, and uh, take heart, Carlos Correa Fantasy Owners, it's going to get better. And I should point out that all this data that we're talking about, it is available for your use, it is on BaseballSavant.com, uh, you can find actual weighted on base, you can find expected weighted on base, and you can compare the two. You can, you can sort by the difference, yeah, like for, we're doing right here. You can do the same just for batting average, if that's what you prefer. Obviously, that will include strikeouts, but not walks, as that's how batting average works. Uh, but this stuff's all its all out there, and it's free for you to use, so you know, feel free to go have some fun with it. Um, we have to look at these things from the other way, too. Overperformers, guys who are off to really hot starts who aren't very likely to uh, sustain those starts. I think number one on this list is maybe just the least surprising thing ever because he's a light-hitting shortstop who's been hitting 400 for like three and a half weeks. Zach Cozart. Zach Cozart, now again, the major league average weighted on base, 316. Zach Cozart's weighted on base, 426. I think his batting average in balls in play is like basically 420 right now. His expected weighted on base is 320, and that makes sense to me. He's expected to be a league average hitter. I can totally buy that. He's performing like he's, you know, Miguel Cabrera on a good day, right? Which uh, I don't think I would. Uh, I don't think I would buy that last day. But when you think of reasons why the Reds have sort of been like interesting, interesting, <laughs> that really helps explain it because their their talent suggests otherwise. But they're hovering around five hundred and they've been competitive and kind of spunky. Uh, Zach Cozart having a month like that kind of helps tell that story. So the next two names on this list of guys who are overperforming. Uh, let me just say, I wrote this morning, so the all-star ballots are out. You can go to MLB.com slash vote and vote uh, through the end of June, and I definitely think you should. So I wrote for the National League, you know, kind of a position by position, what guys, you know, maybe you should vote for, you know. And I got to first base, and I, I almost passed out. I mean, the National League first baseman this year are absurd because you've established stars like like Rizzo and Votto and Goldschmidt and all these guys. And then you have these two somewhat out-of-nowhere guys who are the next two guys on our overperformers list, Ryan Zimmerman. And Eric Thames, when I guess that makes sense, they both have weighted on base well over 500 right now. I don't think anyone is going to expect either of those guys to do that for all that long, but, I mean, they've been crushing the ball. And to, to go back, <laughs> just to give some context on Miguel Cabrera, Miguel Cabrera's expected weighted on base is higher than both Thames and Zimmerman. That's how good Miggy is. <laughs> it, it's weird to think we overlook a guy who already is considered to be like one of the 10 best right-handed hitters who ever lived. And I, I feel we don't credit him enough, uh, which is I, it's just an amazing thing to think about. But back to this list, uh, Ryan Zimmerman's weighted on base coming into today, 553. Again, the average is 316. I don't think he's going to keep that up. But what's really interesting about both of these guys, Zimmerman and Thames, clearly they're not going to keep up a weighted on base of over 500. Uh, the expected is still really, really good. 455 for Zimmerman, 424 for Eric Thames. I mean, there is no way around it. Even if they're not this good, they've been crushing the ball and not striking out. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about why Zimmerman, uh, I think he's getting out a little bit in front of the ball a little more. He's getting a little more elevation, still hitting it hard. And Thames is just not swinging at crappy pitches like he did the first time around. No more sliders in the dirt. Wait for strikes and destroy them. It's a very simple <laughs> thing. It's the simplest thing in the world, and it's the hardest thing to do in baseball. And he's done a really, really good job of that. Um, yeah, then the next two guys on this list are two perennial MVP candidates, Mike Trout and Jose Altuve. Now, these guys are a little bit this, kind of the opposite profile of 
Cabrera in the sense that they're guys that obviously make great contact, but they also have some speed in their game, so that in some cases they're them overperforming might actually be a little less surprising because like they're able to take deep singles and turn them into doubles and take doubles and turn them into triples and even deep ground balls in the hole and turn them into singles. So they, they, they actually get some hits and bases and total bases that where players like Miguel Cabrera are not getting them. Right. You know, there's an interesting game on this list. <laughs> might only be interesting to me. Uh, Tyler Flowers, a catcher for the Braves, he was basically an uninteresting player for the White Sox for a number of years. And then last season, I started noticing him showing up on these exit velocity leaderboards, but he didn't get a ton of playing time. I didn't think all that much of it. Well, here he is again on this lead. He's got a 403 weighted on base now. Now, again, this is an overperformers list, so I wouldn't expect him to keep it up. But it's interesting now. This is the second season in a row I'm actually thinking about Tyler Flowers, uh, which makes that more than any season previous to that, <laughs> where I would have never thought about Tyler Flowers. Uh, and then another name on this list who fits very much in the Zimmerman and Eric Thames category, Bryce Harper, who has a 531 weighted on base. He's not going to keep that up, but the expected is still 448. So whether he's like really, really good or really, really good, it's a it's a matter of degrees. I have an interesting Bryce Harper fact that also applies to another guy on this overperformers list, Josh Harrison. And I'm not even sure what this means, but it's interesting, which is there are 215 players who've faced at least 250 pitches this year. Um, the highest percentage of pitches on what's de- defined as on the corners by Baseball Savant, you know, when the, uh, oh, sorry, on the edge of the strike zone, highest percentage of pitches on the edge of the strike zone, Josh Harrison, 44.4%, which is actually interesting because it suggests that he's, balls on the corner, he's actually still making good contact on, or I don't know. But anyway, I, you can... Matt went off script on that. I didn't know he was actually going to drop that fact. It's a good one, though. I like it. But anyway, number 215 out of 215 on that list, the lowest percentage of pitches on the edges of the strike zone, Bryce Harper. So he's either getting meatballs or just like really poor pitches? Is that what you're saying? I guess pitches like, and this is like, I'm not even sure what to make of this. That's really this, weird. This, this is a, 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 a list that was created by uh, one of our researchers, David Adler, and I was just looking at it today, and I was just, I didn't really know what to make of it, but it, maybe it, it, it helps speak to why Harper's hitting so well, is that he's basically getting a really... They're making the decision of swing or not swing very easy on him. They're either Maybe like, unint- unintentionally so, I guess. They're either really challenging him or just giving him a non-competitive pitch. That's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I've, I, I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, he's a weird guy, I guess, to, to do that too, right? It could just be a fluke of, you know, of, of the first month of the season. But it's notable to me that the number one guy and number la- the first and last guy in that list were both, both on the overperformers list. list. All right, well, let's move on to pitchers, and let's do exactly the same thing. Uh, 177 pitchers with a minimum of 50 plate appearances in the first month of the season. That's what we're talking about. Uh, we're going to look at underperformers, guys who you know, are not necessarily getting the outcomes uh, that they would expect. And so if you look at the weighted on base on this list, up and down our top 10 list, these are guys with some really ugly numbers. But there's kind of two categories here, right? There's the Stephen Wright category, where it's, well, things aren't quite as bad as they look, but they're still pretty bad, right? Uh, he's got a 479 weighted on base against. His expected is 401. Both of those are numbers you do not want to have when the average is 316. So the, the, the combination of a, of a knuckleballer and the green monster, it feels like it sort of just blows well, off that, so much. There's so much noise. In, and that in one this. game in, in Camden Yards where the knuckler wasn't moving <laughs> and he gave up like 45 home runs. Uh, so there's guys like that. You know, there, there's a, a guy like Tyler Glass now. I mean, I keep hearing that Tyler Glass now is pitching really well, but the numbers I keep seeing says maybe otherwise. 418 weighted on base, not so great. 354 expected, also not so great. So these are guys where it's like they're they're not maybe as bad as things look, but it's still not great. 
Yeah, and then the, the, another interesting name that sort of fits into that is Joe Ross, who was optioned to the minors today. Yeah, um, so they could start Jacob Turner, which was really weird. And he's weighed on base 401, expected 334, which is still below average, but not so far afield that you're like, oh, this guy's a disaster. And my issue with Joe Ross, he's always had huge platoon splits, which has always made me think that he may be better off in the bullpen, but that's maybe a different conversation. <laughs> there are So there's a couple of guys on this list that kind of go the other way, where it's not just going from really, really bad to pretty bad. It actually would change the, your viewpoint of them from from negative to positive, where their weighted on base is above average, uh, in some cases considerably so, but their expected on base is actually below average. So uh, a couple of guys on this list, there's three of them, all NL Central guys that you would know. Jake Arrieta, Joe Ross, and excuse me, uh, not NL Central, because Kenta Maeda, right? All of these guys, their expected is below 300, and some of these guys have been getting pounded pretty hard this year, especially Kenta Maeda. Arrieta, I think, is the one who really stands out to me. His strikeout percentage is actually up this year, 24% to 28%. That's good. Uh, his walk rate is down this year, 10% to 7%. That's also good. Now, it is true that his home run per fly ball rate is up. He's been allowing more home runs, uh, and uh, you know his velocity is down a little bit. So his home run per fly ball rate is up from 11% to 21%. That is bad. But the Cubs defense, the historically great Cubs defense from last year, doesn't look the same this year. Does I think this is hurting John Lester, too. When we look at uh, catch probability, this is just outfielders, they're getting to 78% of batted balls. That is the third worst in baseball. You know, not to pat myself on the back too much, but I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit because I don't, I'm not sure this is going to, be, this is going to sustain itself because if Kyle Schwarber starts hitting, it changes the equation. But I remember when he got hurt last year thinking that in the big picture it didn't hurt the Cubs as much as people thought because basically whatever they were going to give up at the plate, they were going to make up for or make up for a lot of it in defense, which I think is what happened. And this year, you see this catch probability number go way down, and Kyle Schwarber is playing left field, and he's not hitting. And it it speaks it speaks to why they're underperforming. With the exception of Eric Hosmer, I believe Kyle Schwarber is the most overrated player in baseball. And I know like, the bat, I think, can be for real, but he's not hitting. And I think Cubs fans kind of treat him like he's the next coming of, of Babe Ruth. And I think he will hit. I think he can hit. But so far, below average hitter, below average fielder, it's, that's, that's not a great sign and you for see the two, Cubs. You see two Cubs... Um, pitchers on this list and it you know it sort of speaks to what we're talking about where the the bad infield defense outfield defense could be really really hurting them yeah what i need to look into a little more deeply is i I still believe that jason hayward is an elite defensive outfielder but it does seem like he's playing more center field this year than he did in the past so instead of comparing him to right fielders maybe we ought to go compare him to center fielders and see if maybe he's not quite as above everybody as he was last year but i I do think that's going to be an ongoing issue for the Cubs. Let's take a, a look at some of the overperformers, right? Guys who uh, maybe a step back is coming. Um, I think this is kind of interesting. Irvin Santana. So I wrote about Irvin Santana. He's actually going to pitch uh, tonight against the A's against Sonny Gray. Irvin Santana has a .77 ERA. Uh, that is obviously fantastic. Irvin Santana has made a career out of being a mid-rotation, like a number three, number four guy for uh, like 13 years now. So I do not believe that he is a true talent .77 ERA guy. He's not going to maintain this the entire course of the year. However, when I looked into this, you'd think, oh, well, he must be getting really lucky, right? This is this is actually elite production. So we have, uh, we've talked about this a couple times, six different kinds of batted ball types. You combine exit velocity and launch angle. One of those types is barrels, which we talk about a lot. Uh, there's three of them that are really, really good for the hitter, three of them that are really, really good for the pitcher. When you look at the three poor contact types, the average is 136. The three hard contact types, the average is 562. So obviously, if you're a pitcher, you want the three good ones for the pitcher. He has a 74% of his batted balls 
are poor contact. That's second highest among all starting pitchers for Irvin Santana. That is not luck. I mean, that's that's completely independent of defense. Side note, Byron Buxton and Max Kepler are actually helping him a lot because their defense is much better. But this is not about defense. This is about him increasing his strikeout rate, getting a ton of soft contact, and I think earning most of that .77 year. He's this year's Kyle Hendricks, it seems like. Well, for the first month <laughs> of the season. I, I, like, I guarantee the A's are going to come out and put up like nine runs on him tonight. But what I'm trying to say is, so far, it's not luck. It's skill. And I think that's what's cool about these kind of stats. We can we can really get to that. I mean, his expected weighted on base of 248 uh, is elite. Max Scherzer last year was 267. So for the first month of the season, he's been better than Max Scherzer's 2016. Obviously, I do not expect that to maintain. Uh, but it has been so far. And there's a couple other names on this list, too, right? Which uh, Who else stands out to hear to you? Uh, Ivan Nova, but he's another one of these guys who goes from obscenely good to just good. Uh, above average. To, 219 so. to 301. But he's, he's, uh, he's fun. You know, he throws strikes. Gets the ball and play. He's he's he is a different profile than almost every pitcher in base. You know, like every pitcher now is like get strikeouts, strikeouts, strikeouts. He's like the one of the most successful pitch to contact player pitchers in baseball, or has been so since he came to the Pirates last year. And I just kind of like people who who buck the trend in in, in any way. Yeah, he's interesting. And then um, Archie Bradley, who I think he's kind of been a cool story this year because getting close to the bust line as a high first round pick uh, as a starter, and now he's been a reliever out of the pen. He's been really, really good, but he's on this list as well. Um, but kind of the same way as Ivan Nova, where he goes from being obscenely good at 228 to still very much above average at 302. And then the, the, the number one guy on this list is also interesting is Jeremy Hellickson, uh, weighted on base of 226, expected of 330. So that goes he goes from being very good to being below average, which is notable because, I mean, people don't really expect the Phillies to contend all, all year. You know, you know they're sort of hang, you know, hanging around 500, which you know, if you hang around 500 and even until September 1, you're basically still in the wild card race if you go on a hot stretch. But people, basically when he accepted the qualifying offer, the ex- expectation was, okay, the Phillies know that they could look to deal him at the deadline and maybe, you know, he could be a, a, a trade chip. And if he keeps this up, he could be a really interesting trade, or he keeps up this illusion or whatever you want to call it. He could be a really interesting trade chip. I, I still can't believe the Marlins chose Andrew Kashner over Jeremy Hellickson last year. But let's move on to the NL East, or let's stay in the NL East. Uh, and before we do, let's just talk about the MLB Pipeline podcast, which is one of our favorite uh, podcasts around here at MLB.com. They focus on all things draft and prospect related. Uh, Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo joined Tim McMaster each week to talk about the universe of MLB's future stars. Last week, they talked about the debuts of Cody Bellinger and Christian Arroyo for the Dodgers and Giants, respectively, and broke down the best player tools in the upcoming MLB draft. So search for MLB Pipeline in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, and do click subscribe because they are great and they are full of really interesting knowledge about the next wave of young stars. Can I just make an aside about Cody Bellinger? I, I wish you would, yes. <laughs> I don't like you hear about leverage in a swing. I don't think there's anyone who puts more of his body. It is just fun to watch him swing. It's like he swings from his the back of his left heel to like this, He's through his front shoulder every time. It's like there's something about it. Like I don't think anyone, not even Bryce Harper, puts more of his body into his swing. I was watching Cody Bellinger. He, so he's hit a couple home runs since, but he got off to a relatively slow start. He struck out like five of his first seven times or something like that. And I was watching one of those where he swung and missed. And he missed by a lot, and he just like corkscrewed himself. I'm like, this is the left-handed hobby bias. I mean, this is basically what it looks like to me. If he if he hits it, it's gonna go a really long way because uh, there's so much like energy and violence behind it, which is great. I mean, from a left-handed hitter, that's that's pretty fun to watch. And he already has more home runs than Adrian Gonzalez, so that'll be an interesting uh, situation. <laughs> he, he certainly does. <laughs> It'll be certainly a playing time situation in uh, in LA, I guess. Uh, let's talk about. So I know everybody wants to say, well, what's the biggest injury in the National League East? And you're probably thinking Noah Syndergaard. Let's let's leave the Mets alone for a minute and talk about Adam Eaton. Um, so the Nationals had, I guess, simultaneously the best and worst week you could have because they had a really 
good week in terms of winning games, scoring a ton of runs. They've already got 170 runs scored. The next best team has only 142. Uh, last place Royals have only 69. That's a 101 run difference. I know they put up 23 runs in one game, so that helped. And had a week in cores where they scored like sure. But still, I mean, their offense is really good. Their offense is insanely good. Unfortunately for the Nats, Adam Eaton blew out his knee. Uh, trying to beat out a close play at first base. He's expected to miss the entire season. He was off to a pretty good start. He had a 393 on base. He had a 462 slugging percentage. Uh, it was 27% above average. And obviously we know that they gave up a ton for him. Uh, side note, Lucas Giolito is not performing well in AAA, but that's an entirely different story. So this is uh, it's bad for the lineup, right? We know that they didn't have a ton of depth, uh, especially because, uh, you know, obviously Harper's great in right field, but Jason Worth is 38 years old. So now they've lost their center fielder. You have a 38-year-old left fielder. They're going to make some kind of move at some point, whether it's like you know, Lorenzo Cain or Carlos Gomez or, or whoever. Uh, but for now, it's Michael Taylor. And Michael Taylor has gotten, I think, a couple of chances to play center for this team. When Denard Span got hurt, it was him. When Ben Revere got hurt, it was him. Now Adam Eaton is hurt, and it's going to be Michael Taylor. And you know, offensively, this is a big step down. His career, 279 on base, 359 slugging, 30 points below average. So that's a big step down. But here's my question for you. Is this a huge step down or a step down at all? On defense, I know that sounds crazy because Adam Eaton, we talked about this a lot, was like one of our stack cast catch probability superstars last year, but that was in right field. And now he's playing center field, or was playing center field. What do you what do you make of this? Is this actually going to hurt the Nats on defense as much as it seems? Um, no, it, does, it doesn't appear to really hurt them on defense at all. I mean, Michael Taylor, you know, you've heard me talk a lot about Jake Marisnik on this show. Michael Taylor has basically the same profile, which is like great speed in the outfield, great arm, some power when he gets to it, but like a really incomplete hitter, but a really useful extra outfielder because he's an excellent defender. And I think that like for the Nats, when you know how good their offense is, and granted Eaton was off to a really good start hitting, so their offense is actually going to take a step back from this injury. But I think their 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 defense and run prevention will probably stay about the same. Yeah, I remember when Eaton was traded for last year, we knew who's going to move. I kind of ran some numbers and decided that after being a very good right fielder, he'd probably be a roughly average center fielder. In the first month of the season, it, it hasn't really looked that way. So if you look at defensive runs saved, negative seven, that's tied for worse. Now, obviously, we know defensive stats over a month are not exactly the most consistent things in the world, but you know, just kind of putting it out there. And uh, as far as our numbers go, on, on five-star catches, which are the toughest, and on four-star catches, which are the toughest, Adam Eaton is 0 for 8. He didn't, didn't make any catches that were worse than a 50-50 shot for him in the first month of the season. Michael Taylor, I think, is interesting, you know, because... Like we said, he's a guy who can't hit. 279 on base for his career is not great. But he's a really interesting stat cast player. As you said, he had a really strong arm. Last year, he was one of only four players, four outfielders, who had multiple throws of 100 miles an hour or more, and he only got into 70 games in the outfield. I mean, that is a legit cannon. Um, and he actually has two of the hardest, two of the seven hardest regular season throws on record behind, two of which are Jake Marisnik, like you just said, uh, two of which are, are Aaron Hicks. We've talked about that a lot, and one of which is Carlos Gomez. Uh, so really, over the last two years, he's thrown the ball 102 miles an hour, 103 miles an hour. That's, that is in a really, really plus throwing arm. Now, interestingly enough, even though I don't think he can hit, he is tied for the third longest home run on record. Let's get it out of the way. It was at Coors Field. That's fine. But if you look at the list of top five longest stat cast home runs, um, I think the first three names are completely unsurprising. John Carlos Stanton, 504 at Coors Field. Chris Bryant, totally unsurprising. Nelson Cruz, completely unsurprising. And then uh, we had that Noma Mazzara one, and we know he's got real power. And then Michael Taylor, of all people. I know Coors Field, but that's, that's like you can't fake that. 
to a certain extent. Like he has this skill. I don't know if he can make enough contact for it. But if he's a better outfielder, uh, we actually had him at two five-star catches last year, including a 1% play. He went nearly 70 feet in 3.7 seconds. Better outfielder, some ability to, for power. You know, you hit him batting eighth. It just Yeah, it just changes. I mean, He's Eaton, a worse player. Eaton, I mean, Eaton was their leadoff hitter, and now Taylor will probably be the number eight hitter. It sort of changes the complexion of that of, of the lineup for sure, but they're clearly the class of that division. And whether or not they want to go out and make a move for a center fielder or maybe a shortstop and move Trey Turner to center field is a – they're, they're going to win the division, I think, without making any of these moves. The question is whether or not they want to do it because they think it will put them over the top yeah. in the postseason. I, I mean, I think they certainly will make a move, but I don't think they need to be uh, so panicky about it to try to do it right now. I think you can get by with what you've got for you know six weeks or so until trading deadline season really gets going. If this costs them three or four wins going from Eaton to Turner or to Taylor, excuse me, uh, then that just means they win the division by you know nine games <laughs> instead of by like thirteen games because I have no confidence in the Mets right now. Uh, sad to say. Or yeah, or I guess the Marlins would probably be the uh, the number two team right now. The NL East, uh, it's it sure is a sight to see. Uh, so we actually we were just talking about outfield defense. So since we did get through the end of our first month, this is our first month with catch probability being kind of a live thing, and it was it was pretty fun to follow along. We had two five star catches on opening day uh, with with Buxton and uh, Jose, Jose Bautista, Bautista, which was great. Uh, so we got to the end of the first month, and we figured well we had to look at at the quote unquote best catches and the you know, team leaderboards and everything. There was one outfielder who got three five-star outs, and a five-star out is a ball that has a catch probability of 25% or lower. These are the really most difficult balls to get to. Uh, there were only four outfielders who got to at least two. One outfielder got to three. Who was it? It's someone we've talked about a lot in the show, and it is not Kevin Kiermeyer. It is Odebel Herrera who, between this, his Kelly League plays that we've talked about, stealing easy outs from other outfielders, his bat flips, and the fact that he's a Rule 5 pick who played shortstop and second base in the minors, he's like now, to me, like the most fascinating player in baseball. I love Odeville Herrera. What I, what I really like about these five-star catches he's made is I don't think he made any of them look difficult. Like, all of them were these plays where he had to go a long distance in a, a reasonable amount of time, and he didn't lay out. I mean, a lot of outfielders who get to balls like that make a crazy dive, or they just don't come close. And he gets there, and he actually he just makes it look really easy. And I, I appreciate that because that's, that's kind of what is my most favorite kind of five-star play. Yeah, and, w- and this offseason, um, when the Phillies signed up for that extension, uh, Todd Zlecki, our Phillies beat reporter, reached out, and he said he uh, had – I think he asked, he asked Mike, you know, hey, uh, Matt Klintak, the Phillies GM, says that, like, their internal metrics really say that he's an elite – Herrera's an elite center fielder. You know, what – what, what, what does StatCast say? And we hadn't really finished developing catch probability, so we sort of looked at things like DRS and UZR, and he was good, but not exceptional. And the early returns on catch probability make me think that, okay, well, maybe there is something, you know, like, this, this sort of adds credence to whatever your, you know, Clintech didn't go into detail with Todd. He just said that our metrics like him. And it makes me think, okay, well, maybe they're doing things more along the lines of catch probability because certainly we're seeing... The early returns are that Herrera is standing out. Yeah, and, and he looks good doing it. Um, so we can look at our leaderboard here. And so we've got a leaderboard of, of the combination of five-star plays plus four-star plays. So basically anything that has a 50-50 chance of being caught or, or more difficult than that. So I'm looking at the first month, and I think that was one of our questions, is how quickly would this stuff be useful, right? Because we know that defense is largely about opportunity as well as skill. And uh, the number one team on this list for collecting the most four- and five-star catches, the Tampa Bay Rays. Which is wonderful. We all know Kevin Kiermaier is great. Steven Souza is someone who's really surprised me. Like he keeps showing up as being a very, very good outfielder. Uh, Malik Smith, we know, is very good. Even 
Corey Dickerson's had his moments, and he's not really regarded as a strong defensive outfielder. And then number two on this list, which just it makes me so happy because as I predicted they would be before the season, the Minnesota Twins. Buxton hasn't hit. He's still an elite outfielder. Max Kepler had the, the single lowest catch probability catch of the entire month, a, a 6% catch. And even Danny Santana is reasonably good. And then you go down the list. Boston, well, that makes perfect sense. Philadelphia, we just talked about Herrera. Uh, and then Milwaukee, which I'm, I'm very happy to see Milwaukee up here because uh, well, for two reasons. One is they are they're going to be interesting for a different reason in a second, but it's also because Keon Broxton, who also has not really been hitting, has made some really fantastic. He made another amazing one last night. Yeah, I'm a, I, I have long been a big Keon Broxton fan. I've been talking about him for months. I hope he hits. But here's what's interesting about this. So those were just the number of catches on these really most difficult plays. What I also have here is just an overall catch probability leaderboard on all plays, easy, difficult, no matter how easy or hard they are just how many of these balls turn into outs or not. So uh, the number one team on this list, tied for number one, really, at just over 90%, the Royals. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and Miami, which I'm a little surprised to see, but, you know, Ozuna's pretty good. Yelich has, has been pretty good. Uh, that that makes a certain amount of sense. The last place team here is the Milwaukee Brewers, which is interesting because they've made several really, really incredible catches, and this says to me that they have bungled more than their share of the uh, the relatively easy ones. Um, but when you go up down this list, the range here is from 75% to 90% of balls being caught. You know, Seattle number three makes sense. They totally redid their outfield. Minnesota's up there. That makes sense. Cincinnati's top five because Hamilton is amazing. And uh, Adam Duvall is actually good for left better than people think he is. He's actually one of the better left fielders in baseball. And then, you know, the bottom five, I think, are, are really interesting. Toronto's near the bottom, which you'd think, well, wait a minute. Kevin Pillar is amazing. Jose Bautista looks ancient. Despite that five-star play he had on opening day. He looks day. ancient. And then, you know, they don't really have a left fielder. It's a combination of a couple guys. Steve Pierce is out there. So that makes sense. The Cubs we just kind of talked about, they've really taken a big step back. And Washington, which I guess kind of gets back to the fact that Adam Eaton is not the best center fielder, and Jason Worth is a 38-year-old playing left field. So those numbers to me... Uh, they at least pass the smell test, but they're really interesting to see because they're not exactly what I would have thought. I'm actually shocked to see the Cubs that low. Uh, that's, I mean, that's something we need to, to, to delve in a little more on because it's definitely, it, when you look at what, looking for reasons why the Cubs have underperformed, it certainly seems like there's something in the, in the sauce there where you look at the pitchers and the fact that they're, you know, basically been a 500 team, that the outfield defense has gone from being a real strength to, uh, a, I don't, I don't want to go so far as to call it liability just yet, but... I want to explore the Schwarber factor a little more. It actually, like, I have no particular rooting interest for or against the Cubs, but it makes me happy that they're having some difficulties because it just makes it more interesting. You know, there's like, they're not the perfect team. There's stuff they have to overcome. They're not going to run away and win the division by 75 games. Uh, before we get to Matt's new favorite relief pitcher, I do want to call out one play that I thought I thought was really interesting in April. Kevin Kiermeyer made a, a five-star play on April 6th with Josh Donaldson hitting. It was a 24% catch probability play. It was a very good play. He ran 125 feet in 5.9 seconds. The 125 feet is the longest of any April you know, play that we consider to be very good. Here's why I like it so much. So he's shaded to right field against the right-handed hitter. He was 125 feet away from the ball's landing point. He was the fourth closest ray to that ball. The left fielder was 104 feet away. The shortstop was 106 feet away. And then the second baseman was shifted to the left side of the bag. He was only 86 feet away. Now, obviously, it's a little more difficult for the infielders to try to go back and get that ball, but there were three teammates closer to the ball, and Kiermaier is the one who comes out of nowhere to get it. Yeah, uh, Mike wrote a piece about the, t- the, the coolest catches of April uh, on the site. You should, uh, you should go look for it, particularly if you want to watch this play, because it's Donaldson hitting, so he and Malik Smith are playing incredibly deep, so they both have such a long way to go, but because it's hitting sh- into like sort of shortish, medium-range left-center field, and the infielders are shifted, 
neither like the second baseman or the shortstop are really have a really good angle to catch it either. And Kiermaier just comes from almost seems like out of nowhere. And he catches it. He doesn't have to dive. I mean, he just goes full sprint and he just full catches. It and he, ca- he actually had the highest sprint speed of any catch. Too. I had to end up going with Billy Hamilton just to show a different play. But he went the longest distance and had the highest sprint speed, uh, which is really cool. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for, Matt, please, please tell us about your favorite April reliever. Well, the reason why I want to talk about this today is because this pitcher has not allowed a hit on his four-seam fastball yet this year, and I wanted to get this in the show before he does. Well, either have I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, true. Um, I was surprised to find out that Justin Wilson this year has an incredible success rate on his fa- four-seam fastball, but it doesn't look like it's a fluke. Thus far this season, hitters are 0 for 22 and at bats ending in his four-seam fastball, which is, you know, not surprisingly, leads the majors. Um <laughs> Um, Chris, among pitchers who've, who've had at least 20 at-bats and in a four-seamer, Chris Sale is second. Uh, hitters are four for, four for 52, 077. So Justin Wilson, over 22. What's also interesting, he has the highest um, whip percentage on four-seam, or sorry, third highest uh, whip percentage on four-seam fastballs uh, among 50, uh, minimum 50 swings induced behind Craig Kimbrell and Tommy. Is it Conley? I don't even know how to pronounce I, it. I believe it's Conley, but I honestly don't Con- know. Anyway, so, but what's interesting is that he has elite spin rate. And not necessarily surprising, but I never really – this is, again, one of these examples is I never really thought about Justin Wilson before. And then I see – you know, you start doing digging, and you kind of – the, the puzzle kind of comes together pretty quickly. His spin rate on his four-seam fastball is a little over 2,500 RPMs, which is – that you're, you're talking about the Scherzer-Darvish-Verlander zone. So Justin Wilson, you know, would not have thought of him as someone who was in this class of pitcher, but it turns out he is, and it, there's a good explanation for why his four-seam fastball has been so dominant. I remember thinking he was underrated when the Yankees traded him to Detroit before the 2016 season, right? They got Luis Sessa and Chad Green, so like those guys are useful, I guess, but I really liked him. And if you think about what would have happened if they didn't trade him, all of a sudden you've got a Yankee bullpen that's Chapman, Batances, Miller, and Justin Wilson. <laughs> I mean, that that's obscene. That's unbelievable, but they didn't go that route. I, n- I never quite understood why. Uh, well, while we're talking about the Yankees, that is a good segue to our... Uh, our uh, next inductee, our next play being inducted into the StatCast Hall of Fame. Yeah, we did this for the first time last week with the Adam Rosales home to home trot on his on his outside the park home run, and we're going to try to induct a, a cool new play into the Hall of Fame each week. I imagine sometimes we'll actually have to sit down and like put some real thought into this, like oh, what should we do this week? And sometimes Aaron Judge will come out and destroy a baseball in one of the weirdest games I think I've ever seen uh, for the hardest hit home run of the StatCast era. On April 28th against the Orioles, he took a 97.1 mile an hour fastball from Kevin Gosman, and he crushed it at 119.4 miles an hour. I put it, I printed out a screenshot here for Matt, and I tweeted out, middle, middle to Aaron Judge is just a no-no. Don't, don't do that. It will not end well for you. Uh, so that broke the previous record held by, wait for it, Giancarlo Stanton at 119.2 and also 118.5. Giancarlo Stanton now has three of the top five hardest hit home runs. Carlos Gonzalez has one, and Aaron Judge is the record holder. I, you know, I don't know that there's that much more velocity you can put on top of 119.4 and still get it out, right? We've talked about this a little bit before, that at a certain point, there's diminishing returns. If you hit it too hard, you've hit it on the screws too hard, you're not going to get that elevation. I mean, are we going to see a 120-mile-an-hour home run? I mean, it's possible, I guess? It seems like we will. 119.4, it seems. I mean, that the, the home run by Judge was just was jaw-dropping. I mean, it was, it was basically the dead center field on a line. It, it was incredible. I mean, last year, you know, you did a piece sort of calling – Giancarlo Stanton, the Steph Curry of baseball, because the way that Steph Curry 
shoots threes, he's on his own, he's on his own planet, and just John Carl standing exit velocity is on his own planet. It's crazy to me that just one year later we have someone, we have a legitimate challenger to the exit velocity crown in Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge has eight batted balls above 150 miles per hour this year. No one else has more than two. Yeah, I looked at this. So in the Statcast era, so the last three seasons, and obviously Judge has not played the last three seasons, but. 88 hitters have had at least 10 batted balls go 110 miles an hour or more. I mean, that's some serious exit velocity. You can't do that by mistake. That takes skill to do that even once, much less 10 times. This happens so rarely that over the last three seasons, only 1.1% of all batted balls in baseball go at least 110 miles an hour. So it's something that's really rare. Uh, and I, I looked at the guys who did this the most often, and I didn't want to just do raw totals because Aaron Judge hasn't been playing that long and he wouldn't rank anywhere near. I just wanted to do who has the biggest percentage of their batted balls going 110 miles an hour or more? Unsurprisingly, number one, Giancarlo Stanton, 20.6% of his batted balls go 110 miles an hour or more. Number two is Aaron Judge, 18.4%. Okay, so we jumped from 20.6% to 18.4%. Not a big gap. Number three, 10.4%. There's an enormous gap between number two and number three, both in the 10% range. It's uh, Joey Gallo and Mark Trumbo. None of that's surprising. Other guys on the list, you know, Cruz, Alvarez, Hanley, Trout, Cargo, Sano, the guys you would expect. I mean, Aaron Judge is really showing that it's not just because he's this enormous man who plays right field and kind of looks like it could be John Carlos Stanton. The evidence actually bears this out. Yeah, no, it's he's he's become a his at bats have become a much must watch, and uh, it was only a matter of time for one of his at bats to end up in the Statcast Hall of Fame. It happened in our second week of doing it, this. It did. So he's an inductee, and just one more thing that I found really interesting about this home run: since it's the hardest hit home run in the Statcast era, by definition, that makes it the hardest hit home run at Yankee Stadium. It has to. But I found this fun. He actually had previously owned that record, and Mark Trumbo broke it and held that record for like 12 minutes, and then Aaron Judge took it back. So entering the night, the hardest hit home run at Yankee Stadium was Aaron Judge, 115.5 miles an hour on April 19. And then Mark Trumbo, very, very briefly, took that over. He took a shot off of Brian Mitchell in the sixth inning, 115.7. Now he owns the record for hardest hit Yankee home run. The very next inning... Here comes Judge, 115.9. He's like, no, this is my record. I'm going to own this record. I found that really fascinating that that could change hands like that. For sure. So welcome to the StatCast Hall of Fame, Aaron Judge. My guess is this is not the last time we'll be talking about you here. Uh, That's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. This is Matt Myers. Join us next week. 